remember reading a story once about a uh, French king, Louis XIV or somebody like that, back in the 17th or 18th century, and it was customary for the kings of that uh, period to have an official portrait painted. And so this man, uh, this king, commissioned a portrait to be painted of him, to be hung there in the palace. And the interesting thing about this particular king is that he had a large wart on his nose. And uh, the artist who painted this portrait painted a fairly accurate picture, except he left that uh, wart off the uh, nose in the portrait, evidently uh, meaning well. And the portrait was sent back to the king for his approval. And uh, he uh, sent the painting back and insisted that this artist... uh, brush in that uh, wart because he wanted that painting to be accurate and to reflect him exactly as he was. Evidently had a healthier self-image than uh, most of us. But the thing that strikes me about the pictures we see of the uh, main characters in the Bible is that the authors of the scripture paint uh, their portraits of these men just like that. They paint men like Abraham and Moses and Jonah. They paint them just as they were, warts and all. And in the passage I want us to look at today, we will see that even Paul and Barnabas were not exempt from uh, giving in to the temptation of the flesh. Even the mighty apostle did not have his act together at all times, which can be a comfort to us, I think. So turn with me to Acts chapter 15, and we will begin in uh, verse 36. One of the things I've uh, always been uh, impressed with when I read uh, modern biographies of Christian writers is is how flawless they always appear. Uh, We kind of give in to a modern form of uh, idol worship, I think, at times. And uh, yet the the writers of Scripture never give in to this tendency to gloss over the weaknesses of their main characters. And we see that in our account before us today. Remember that in uh, the previous part of Acts chapter 15, we saw Luke's record of the Jerusalem Council in which the issue was debated, what does a man have to do to become a Christian? And the decision that the council made was that Gentiles do not have to be circumcised to become Christians. They do not, first of all, have to become uh, Jews in order to become Christians. And when that decision had been made, uh, Paul and Barnabas, along with Judas and Silas, two prophets there in the early church at Jerusalem, were sent to Antioch to convey the decision that was made by the Jerusalem council and to encourage the church there. And so this period had been going on for some time, and Luke tells us in verse 36 that after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord, and see how they are. Now, Paul's first missionary journey, along with Barnabas, had been to the southern part of the province of Galatia. And uh, after Paul's first visit there, he had evangelized the cities of Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, as you remember. And uh, after Paul had left that region and returned to Antioch, there were some Jews who infiltrated those young churches and distorted the gospel of grace that Paul had been preaching and had begun to mix in with the gospel of grace legalism. Paul discovered this when he was in Antioch and immediately uh, fired off the letter of Galatians to these very same people that he had visited on his first journey in an effort to counteract this mixture of legalism and uh, the gospel. Paul was not able to uh, return himself because of the demands of the Jerusalem Council and the needs of the Antioch Church, so he sent a letter instead. But 
had been eager for some time, evidently, to go back and pay a visit in person to these Galatian churches and to see uh, what kind of progress they were making. And so he suggests to Barnabas that they retrace their steps and visit every city in which a church had been planted and see how the believers were progressing. But a problem quickly arose which led uh, Barnabas and Paul to part company. Luke tells us in 37 to 41 what this was. And Barnabas was desirous of taking John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord, and he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Well, the issue that caused these two mighty apostles to part company was the question of what to do with John Mark on this second journey. As you remember from our previous study, when they had reached the southern coast of Asia Minor, what is now Turkey, on their first missionary activity, uh, John Mark had left Paul and Barnabas and had returned home to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know why he left them. Paul uses the word, or Luke uses the word deserted here, indicating that it was some moral failure on his part, some failure of courage or something like that. It may have been that he was resentful of the fact that Paul was beginning to assume the prominent leadership position in the missionary team rather than Barnabas, his uncle. It's uh, possible that the uh, physical demands of missionary activity were more than he decided he could put up with. We know that he was a man from a fairly wealthy background and may have been used to comfort, and the thought of trekking across the mountains of uh, southern Turkey may not have been very appealing to him. Or it's possible that he may have resented Paul's uh, open approach to the Gentiles and the fact that he was offering to them the gospel without insisting that they be circumcised. And he may have even been the one that conveyed the word to Jerusalem that Paul was not uh, insisting that, Jew that Gentiles be circumcised for the first time. But for whatever reason, Mark abandoned them, went back home to Jerusalem, and Paul and Barnabas uh, continued. Now, whatever the problem was that Mark had, he had evidently resolved it in his own mind by this time because he was ready and willing to go with them on their second venture, and Barnabas was eager to take him along <clears throat> and to give him another chance. And evidently, their, their argument here was that their disagreement was uh, one of a fair amount of intensity and duration. You know that Luke says in verse 38 that Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along. And it creates a picture for us of a, uh, of a rather lengthy and uh, acrimonious uh, dispute over what to do with John Mark. And unable to resolve this, they fell into something of a heated uh, argument. The word that's translated sharp disagreement there in verse 39 is the word that we get our English word paroxysm from. And this word was used in the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament to, uh, to uh, deal or to, to describe violent anger or someone who was burning with anger. So this uh, disagreement between Paul and Barnabas became heated and acrimonious, and because of their inability to resolve this personal difference of opinion, they were forced to part company. 
uh, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off from Antioch to Cyprus. That was Barnabas's home country, you'll remember. And Paul immediately chose uh, Silas. He is known elsewhere as Silvanus in the scriptures and was commissioned by the church there at Antioch to continue their missionary endeavors. And that's interesting because it suggests to us that the church at Antioch sided with Paul in this issue. He says that uh, Paul and Silas, committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord, went on to Syria and Cilicia, where he just says that uh, Barnabas and Mark just went to Cyprus, period. So it suggests that in this uh, debate, which must have become uh, an issue of concern to the entire church at Antioch, and Mark's, uh, the presence or absence of Mark on this next journey, a matter of public uh, concern and controversy, they sided with Paul in this issue and commissioned them publicly to continue their missionary endeavors while Barnabas and Mark headed off to Cyprus. And uh, it's interesting that, that uh, Barnabas and Mark just disappear from Luke's account in the book of Acts. They never reappear on these pages in Luke's uh, history. The focus now shifts entirely to, to Paul. So Paul chose Silas. Silas was one of the prophets in the church at Jerusalem, was, as we have seen. He was one of the men that went with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch to communicate the decision of the Jerusalem council of the church there. We know that he mixed well with Gentiles, even though he was a Jew, and we know from Acts 16 that he was also a Roman citizen, so he became the, the perfect teammate for Paul in this new missionary endeavor. And one of the things that surfaces here, by the way, is that you very clearly see Paul's commitment to team ministry, that before he did anything else, he replaced Barnabas. He found another man to take his place on the ministry team. Uh, there are no uh, lone rangers in the pages of the New Testament. We often encounter today pastors who do try to do all the work of the ministry, but uh, Paul never shared that view. He always uh, recognized the need for other gifted men to minister along with him. I think this is one of the reasons why many uh, men, both in uh, uh, non-vocational ministries, such as teaching Sunday school or home Bible studies or whatever, often burn out is that uh, they feel the entire weight of the responsibility to carry out this ministry themselves, and this eventually will wear even the strongest of us down. And we see in the Scriptures a strong commitment to ministering together as a team, not as, a, as an individual. So leaving uh, Antioch, Paul and Silas move north, following the land route through the province of Syria and Cilicia. Antioch was the capital of this province. And they strengthened the churches that were in that region. Paul probably paid a visit to Tarsus at this time, his hometown. Tarsus was in the uh, geographical region of Cilicia. Well, I think the question that comes to my mind and probably comes to your mind as well is who was right in this uh, argument and who was wrong? Was Paul right or was Barnabas right? Well, my answer to that is that they were both right and that they were both wrong. They were right to disagree about Mark, but they were wrong to quarrel over him. Their disagreement, their difference of opinion on what to do with Mark is a function of the difference in the spiritual gifts that they had and the difference in their horizons, their vistas for ministry. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He had been entrusted by God with the responsibility of taking the gospel to the farthest corners of the Roman Empire. 
And he did not want to take a chance on anything that would interfere with that uh, glorious vision before him. And he saw Mark as a potential liability. So Paul, because of his gifts, uh, was consumed. His attention was focused on the work that needed to be done. And that was proper. God had given him that vision and those gifts. Now Barnabas, on the other hand, we know was marked primarily as a man who had the gift of encouragement. And it was right for him and natural for him to think primarily of the man rather than of the work. And every time Barnabas appears in the pages of the New Testament, he is acting in this role of an encourager, of seeing the great potential in God's men and uh, unleashing them in Christian service. Uh, He was the one that uh, introduced Paul, took him by the hand, and introduced him to the apostles in Jerusalem. Paul had been a violent persecutor of the church, and the apostles were suspicious of Paul when they read about his conversion and very reluctant to to meet him, suspecting a trap. And Barnabas was the man that broke down those barriers and introduced Paul to the apostles and established a fellowship relationship between them. And then after Paul goes off to Tarsus and just disappears from the gospel account for about seven years, Barnabas was the one that remembered him and went off to Tarsus and got him and brought him back to Antioch and put him back on center stage in uh, the activity in the body of Christ. So it was natural for Barnabas to think of the man, and he saw the great potential in Mark. He saw the change in his heart since the first journey and was more than willing to take another chance on this man. And so it's very understandable to see that they were both right in their perspective on Mark, I think, uh, and we can see that. I think for myself, my uh, mind uh, goes with Paul and my heart goes with Barnabas. But you can see that both were justified in their view. But where they were went wrong was to quarrel over this. They had failed to uh, learn the fine art that all of us must cultivate as Christians, and that is learning to uh, agree to disagree agreeably, to... Uh, <laughs> to learn how to uh, disagree with one another without that degenerating into animosity or hostility or suspicion. Uh, and that is something that we must all learn to do. Uh, I think one of, the, uh, one of the most grievous things to the Lord is when he sees Christians arguing with one another. And it doesn't really matter much over what it is. Uh, Paul was insistent to Timothy in 2 Timothy, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be gentle, kind to all, patient when, when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition to the truth. And this is a, a challenge before us to learn to develop the same ability to disagree with other believers, whether it's on philosophy of ministry or technique of ministry or theological viewpoint, without that degenerating into a break in fellowship or break in relationship. I was kind of reminded of this uh, rather humorously by a friend of mine who uh, told me uh, that one of the uh, biggest arguments he and his wife had in their young marriage was over uh, how many seats there were in the Rose Bowl. They were were driving through Southern California, and his wife happened to mention that there were 76,000 seats in the Rose Bowl. Well, my friend knew that there were 103,000 seats in the Rose Bowl. He said, no, there are 103,000 seats. Well, she was insistent that there were 76,000. 
And uh, before five minutes had passed, they were into one of the bitterest arguments they'd ever had as a married couple. And it's a reminder to us of this very same principle. Now, this, uh, this week, I am going to have lunch with a pastor of a charismatic church here in Boise, and I am almost certain that we are going to share some differences of viewpoint theologically. And the same challenge will be before us that was before Paul and Barnabas. If we can meet and uh, agree to disagree agreeably. This was the challenge that Paul and Barnabas failed to meet here. Now, we're going to have many opportunities as believers to exercise this this kind of relational uh, ability uh, because we will continually encounter Christians who have a different viewpoint on how evangelism ought to be done, on how discipleship ought to be done, on uh, what kind of techniques ought to be used in ministry, and uh, on how baptism is to be carried out, whether it's immersion or sprinkling or infant or believer's baptism, uh, whether or not Christians can vote uh, Democratic or whether they must revote uh, Republican. Uh, Issues over when the rapture will take place. There is just no end of the kind of controversies that we can get into with other believers. This, uh, this week I had breakfast with uh, a good friend of mine, and we were, this was on Wednesday morning, and we were discussing the uh, ways in which we had voted on Tuesday. And as we discussed, we soon realized that we had, we had voted exactly opposite to each other on almost every candidate and every issue, right down the line. And uh, yet, because of our love for each other and our com- common commitment to the Lord, this, uh, this uh, did not do any damage at all to our relationship. We, were, we parted just as uh, uh, in much affection afterwards as we had before. And this is the skill that we must learn to develop. And there's a little in- indication in 1 Corinthians that Paul realized that he was wrong in this instance. Uh, one, of the, one of the qualities of love that Paul describes for us in 1 Corinthians 13.5 is that love is not provoked. And the word that he uses there is the same word that uh, Luke uses here, sharp disagreement. It's the same word that Paul uses there. He realized then that love has its characteristic of being something that is not easily provoked. So I think we can see that they were right to disagree and yet wrong to quarrel. And I think it's possible that they were right to separate as well due to the fact they could not resolve this difference of view. It was proper for them to separate uh, those of you that are familiar with Luis Palau's ministry will remember that a number of years ago he was the president of OC Ministries. And uh, yet, as he exercised that leadership role, both he and the rest of the leadership in OC Ministries began to realize that they were moving in two different directions. OC Ministries had its, as its focus to equip the, the local church for ministry. They were a servant to the local church. And it became clear to them that the Luis's gifts were uh, evangelistic in nature to impact an entire country in a mass evangelism way for the gospel. And they realized that they were, uh, would be much more effective if they parted company than if they continued to work together. And so uh, in friendliness and in love, they parted company. Luis formed his own evangelistic association and has gone his own way. And they had learned this beautiful art of uh, separating properly and yet without any kind of rancor or disagreement. I think we can see even in this case that God used this to his advantage in his sovereign grace. He was able to take advantage even of this quarrel. Uh, Now, instead of one missionary team, there were two, uh, Barnabas and Mark on Cyprus 
and Paul and Silas in Galatia. I think we can see that same thing in the in the history of our church. A number of you were around several years ago when uh, this church split, and another church was started with the branch. And at, t- at that time, there was a fair amount of uh, bitterness and hard feelings. And yet today, that breach has been healed, and now in place of one church teaching the scriptures, there are two. And uh, the ministry has expanded in the in the Treasure Valley. So God can use these things even to further his cause. Now, as you move on into chapter 16, we will see that Paul not only replaced Barnabas immediately, but he also replaced Mark. Let's read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 16. And he came also to Derby and to Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. So as they moved north uh, on the land route, they came first of all to the city of Derby. That had been the last city they had visited on their first journey, but they are moving in the opposite direction this time, from east to west rather than west to east. So Derby was the city that they came to first, and they retraced the steps along the main Roman highway there, the same highway, by the way, that Alexander the Great had used when he conquered Persia, and came back to the cities they had visited on their first journey. And this is where we were introduced uh, for the first time to Timothy. Timothy lived at Lystra, as you may remember, and was probably one of the circle of disciples that gathered around Paul when he had been stoned and left for dead and evidently had become a Christian on Paul's first evangelistic effort there in Lystra. And uh, it had been at least a year since Paul had been in that community. And over the course of that year, Timothy's great progress in the faith had come to the attention of the Christians in that entire region. And he came highly recommended to Paul. Paul was always on the lookout for young men with great potential in ministry. And so he brought Timothy alongside to train him up in ministry and to entrust him increasingly with uh, greater and greater ministry responsibilities. I like to think of uh, Timothy as the first uh, intern in the uh, Scripture. We've got eight of those in our fellowship today, and I like to see Timothy as the forerunner of, of them. Now, Paul had Timothy circumcised, which, uh, by the way, would be kind of an immediate test of how serious Timothy was about missionary work. He... Uh, was probably about 18 at this time. And what is the question that raises is, why does Paul have Timothy circumcised here when he had just, uh, in the chapter prior to this, uh, insisted that Titus not be circumcised? Well, I think we need to realize that in chapter 15, the debate was over the nature of the gospel. And Titus was a Greek. He had a Greek father and a Greek mother. But here in chapter 16, the issue is not the nature of the gospel, but simply a matter of culture. And Timothy, who was the son of a Jewish mother, would have been regarded by other Jews as a Jew. 
They figured descent through the mother. They figured that you can't always know who the father is, but you can always know who the mother is. And so if you have a Jewish mother, this makes you a Jew. So Paul, in having Timothy circumcised, was simply removing a cultural roadblock to Timothy's ministry. He knew that as part of the team, they were going to want to take him into synagogues in every place they went in the Roman Empire, and that Timothy, if he was not circumcised, would not be allowed to enter these synagogues. So simply a way of removing a cultural roadblock. This was done for the sake of Jewish unbelievers rather than Jewish believers. And this, by the way, is uh, one of the areas in which our current missions thinking is undergoing a great shift and a shift in the right direction. For many, many years when Christians went out as missionaries from the Western world, they would move into cultures which were quite foreign to ours, and they would insist on westernizing these people. And they would begin to uh, have them wear Western clothes and build Western-style churches. And yet more and more, missions thinkers are coming to realize the same thing that Paul did here, that it's important for the messenger to adapt himself to the culture of the audience rather than adapting the culture of the audience to the culture of the messenger. And I think Dave gave a good illustration last week of that man who was ministering in a Muslim community. Another great example of this very same principle in operation is Hudson Taylor. A film is going to be shown here tonight on his life. And he was one of the first men in missions to realize this. And when he went to minister in uh, mainland China, one of the first things he did is he, he allowed his hair to grow so it would, he could shape it in the style of the Chinese, complete with the uh, ponytail. I'm not sure I would be willing to wear a ponytail for the sake of the gospel, but Hudson Taylor was. And he wore the clothes that the Chinese wore, and he uh, ate the food that the Chinese ate. He assimilated himself to their culture. And he received much criticism from it, from other Western missionaries, but he was right. And he was doing the very same thing that Paul is doing here, adapting his culture to the culture of the audience he sought to reach. Now, after Timothy had been chosen, the elders there at the church at Lystra laid hands on him. We know that from First and Second Timothy. And just as we have done with Bill Senecal and Dave Pavlik in the recent past, laid hands on him and sent him off in ministry. I guess one final question probably needs to be answered before we finish our discussion of this text, and that is the question of whether or not this breach between Paul and Barnabas was, was ever healed, and whether Paul's opinion of Mark ever changed. And we know that the answer to both of those questions is yes. As far as Paul's breach with Barnabas goes, we know that from his later letters that Paul made at least two very complimentary references to Barnabas. So both of them were big enough men to uh, uh, apologize and to patch up their differences. And we know as well that, that Paul's opinion of Mark changed over time. And uh, that... Uh, it makes Mark one of the most, uh, to me, one of the most fascinating characters in all of the New Testament. You remember that the first time we encounter John Mark is in his own gospel in Mark 14. There is uh, what to me is the strangest incident in the entire New Testament. That's the incident that's recorded of a young man who is uh, standing behind the bushes watching the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And one of the Roman soldiers uh, spies this young man peering through the bushes at the edge of the garden and goes after him. 
and he actually grabbed him, but he got him by a linen sheet, which was all he was wearing, evidently his bed sheet. He grabbed the sheet, and the young man pulled away and ran off into the night, stark uh, naked. And that's in the Bible. And the only reason that that's in the Gospel of Mark is quite clear. That's because that was John Mark. That was his own uh, personal uh, eyewitness of the uh, arrest of the Lord. And that's why he included it. History's uh, first streaker, I often like to think of him. (laughs) And that's the first encounter we have with Mark. The next encounter is in Acts 12, and this concerns the arrest of Peter. When he was released miraculously in the middle of the night by the angels, the place that Peter went to was John Mark's home. Evidently, it was a sizable enough home to hold meetings of the early church. A servant girl answered the door, so it was a uh, representative family of some wealth. So Mark may have had a fairly comfortable background, come from a fairly well-established family there in Jerusalem. And then the next we hear of him is this major blowout on his first uh, major ministry activity. He dropped the ball completely, uh, deserted Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey, and went back home to Mother. And then, when Barnabas was prepared to take him along again, his former defection, his former failure, became a matter of controversy for the entire church at Antioch. And the entire church at Antioch decided that Paul was right and not taking another chance on him. And they send Paul and Silas off, and Mark and Barnabas slink off home. And I'm sure Mark was defeated and uh, dejected, feeling uh, useless and hurt and depressed at this time. I think it would be uh, humiliating for any of us to be uh, rejected publicly by a man of Paul's stature, and that's exactly what happened to Mark. And yet, under Barnabas's care and encouragement and under the Lord's patient hand, uh, Mark was reshaped and he was uh, rebuilt and the Lord put him back into action. And we know f- uh, several years later, when Paul is writing uh, the letter of Colossians, that he instructs the Colossians to receive Mark. He says, accept him, welcome him when he comes. In Philemon, he refers to Mark as his fellow worker in the gospel. And in 2 Timothy, he instructs Timothy to bring Mark to Rome when he comes because Mark is useful to me for ministry. So Paul realized over time, as Mark had an opportunity to prove himself, that Barnabas had indeed been right, that this man was qualified to uh, minister the gospel. And so this breach between Paul and Mark was healed. I think the uh, great lesson that comes to me out of uh, looking briefly at Mark's life is to realize that uh, God is the God of the second chance, that uh, God is the God of fresh starts and new beginnings. I'm always, uh, I've been, st- been struck in the past with wondering why God uh, made days 24 hours long. And I think it's because in His grace, He wanted us to have a fresh start, a new beginning every 24 hours. Knowing our frailty and weakness, he just likes to give us, get us off to a, a clean start every 24 hours. And that's what he did with Mark. He gave him a fresh start, a new beginning. His uh, past failures did not uh, disqualify him. They didn't uh, destroy his usefulness in God's service, but God was able to restore him to, to useful ministry. did not give up on him as Paul had done. And I think Mark's story reminds me of the story of Jonah in the Old Testament, 
The book of Jonah begins with the words, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, and preach against that great city. And Jonah, with the obedient heart that he had, immediately headed in the other direction to Tarsus, which was at the, the farthest end, the western end of the known world at that time, as far away from God and his mission as he could get. And yet God went after him and uh, retrieved him and rebuked him and used uh, fish to teach him a great lesson. And he got Jonah's attention, and Jonah repented. And then in the book of Jonah comes what I think is uh, what may be the most encouraging verse in all of the Bible. Jonah 3.1, which says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. He gave him another chance. I think that's the great lesson for us from Jonah's life and from Mark's life, that, that uh, no matter how badly we feel we have dropped the ball, no matter how often we feel like we've dropped the ball, uh, God is always willing to uh, forgive, to restore, to uh, pick us up, to dust us off, and to put us back into usefulness in his service. Uh, no matter how serious our uh, failures have been in the past, they do not disqualify us from future usefulness, from acceptance from the Lord, and from being used greatly by him to, to minister to others. And I think in that we can be greatly encouraged. And I think this leads us into our uh, communion service. I'm going to pray, and then we will distribute the elements, but I think this is what uh, one of the things that the Lord's Supper is really all about. The uh, elements in the Lord's Supper are the uh, wine and the bread. The wine is that which speaks of God's forgiveness to us. It's a symbol of the blood of Christ, which was poured out on our behalf so that our failures are no longer held against us, but the slate can be wiped clean and we can start fresh. And the bread is that which pictures the strength, the source of life and strength that Jesus is to us on a daily basis, that he offers to uh, give us the strength that we need to, be, to change, to be transformed, and to begin to act righteously and de dependably in areas where we have failed in the past. And so the Lord's Supper speaks of God's total provision for us to uh, be restored and renewed in our relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the uh, clarity with, with, the, with which the Scripture presents its uh, heroes. We pray that you will <clears throat> teach us to meet the challenge that Paul and Barnabas failed to meet here in this passage of learning to uh, differ lovingly without uh, degenerating into to hurt and anger. And we thank you for the great lesson from Mark's life that you always uh, give us a fresh start and a new beginning, that you never hold our past against us, but you forgive, you separate our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. You're always prepared to give us a new beginning and a fresh start in your grace. We thank you for that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.